You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 18. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows that very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, there are more than sand. I awake and I am still with you. Today we're praying for Hope Coffee. Um, They partner with coffee growers and practice fair trade with coffee farmers in Central America. So please join with me in praying for them. Father God, we just thank you for Hope Coffee. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry outreach that they have in partnering with coffee farmers in their area and also bringing the saving grace uh, and message of Jesus Christ to them. Thank you for those who have come to know you. And Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would soften the hearts of other coffee farmers, that they will come to know you and call you Lord and Savior. We thank you for this important mission, and we thank you so much that we are getting their coffee here at church. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. Good morning. Well, like many of you, I'm still battling the crud. How many of you have a cold or cough? You will. You, oh, you will. I want for, I was able to, you know, yes, last week was awesome. It was like last Sunday, uh, the weather was perfect. And now we have squalls and welcome to Wyoming. Nobody's laughing. Are you depressed? Um, yes. <laughs> I went for a bike ride uh, after church on Sunday with my respiratory plague or whatever you call it, and I have not stopped coughing since, so I'm still coughing. All right, uh, so the ushers are going to come forward, take the, offer, or take the offering. If you're visiting with us, uh, please don't feel obligated to give. We're happy you're here. Um, they, the, you could drop off a communication card in the bag that passes by or drop it in the box. There's still coffee out there if you're still sleepy. Um, nobody. Man, you guys are, I don't know. All right, I'm just going to start. Just going to start. Uh, how many of you have purchased a home in your lifetime? Okay, so how many of you when you went looking for that home, at the very beginning, we're really excited, right? You're excited and you're like, yeah, this is going to be fun. And then after like the third or fourth house, that excitement just wanes, right? Anybody? Like it gets old after, after a while. Uh, last spring, we began you know, our journey in looking for you know, a home uh, here in Cheyenne. And uh, we... You know, it was getting old. We, we, I don't know how many houses we looked at. We looked at a bunch. And, uh, and so we were at home in our Colorado home, and I came across this listing. 
And I told Roy Ma, I think it was on a Monday, I said, we got to see this house. Like, it's just going on the market, and we got to do it tomorrow. And so she took off from work, and we drove up to Cheyenne and saw this house. And, it, it, you know, on paper, it looked like it checked off all the boxes. Uh, as soon as we pulled up, we immediately started falling in love with the home just because on the right side is, is, is the, this huge park. We're right across the street from Saddle Ridge uh, Elementary School. And so we were excited. We walked into the home. Everything looked perfect. Uh, it just looked great. And, and we just we were like, we got to make an offer. And so uh, we put earnest money down just to let them know we were serious. We were going to make an offer. Uh, and, and we really liked the home. And then you know how it goes. You go back and forth with uh, homeowners and negotiate a price. And once you reach that, that price uh, that you both agree upon, uh, then you get uh, a form. And that form looks something like this. And what I've learned, excuse me, I got coughed. Uh, what I've learned is that, uh, that it has very little bite, but everybody has it, and it's called a property disclosure form. Hey, you ever see one of those? Nobody. Oh, I feel bad for you. <laughs> Actually, I don't. Um, uh, for legal reasons, I can't tell you what's on it, Just, uh, but when we read it, it said pretty much, there's nothing wrong with the house. And we're like, yes, this is great. So we'll, you know, this house is move-in ready. Uh, we, we can start the process. And so we, we uh, you know, we, we signed, let's see, we closed on the house, I believe, May 15th or 16th. It was right around our, my, our, my wife and my anniversary. We closed on the house. And you know what happened the following week? No. <laughs> Close. Hail. Hail happened. Uh, the big hailstorm came through Saddle Ridge. And we had about 14 holes in our fence. Our roof needed to be replaced. Uh, the house needed to be repainted. And there were some other things that, uh, that the hail decided that, or the hail did to our home. Um, so, which is fine. It's black and white. It's, you know, the hail damage. We signed up for that when we decided to move up to Cheyenne. Epic hailstorms. Um, but when, the following week, once we got into the, I got in the home and started getting it ready, most of you know the story, so I'm not going to bore you with all the details, uh, is when we discovered the first of four batches of mold in the home. And so I thought, oh boy. This property disclosure form said nothing about mold. And uh, really, to, to give, just to give you the, the overall picture of what we were looking at, <clears throat> the total damage estimate from the hail damage was, I believe, $22,000. The total damage estimate for uh, everything that was going on inside the home was about $27,000. That's what we inherited. And uh, none of that was on our property disclosure form. That's how we kind of view life. We, for some reason, believe that we are the writers of our own property disclosure form, or that God has written it for us, and, and, and to our approval, it says nothing about suffering. You ever feel that way? Like, I have a property disclosure form, God, and it doesn't include cancer, it doesn't include disease, it doesn't include death, it doesn't include, you know, whatever. 
It doesn't include a divorce. It doesn't include any of those things. My property disclosure form is perfect. Now, I understand there are other people around me whose, who, whose lives are going to be impacted by death and divorce and suffering and disease and those things, but it will never touch me. You ever you know, kind of think that way? You ever, I mean, we might not say it out loud, but we think that way. Oh, it's so tragic that our neighbor lost her husband. Or it's tragic that, that um, you know, so-and-so lost their job. But we never think it's going to touch us. And when it does, it rocks our world. Job, who we're going to look into his life a little bit uh, during our, with our time this morning, thought his property disclosure form was fine until stuff started happening. Right? He, uh, he started off great. He had a successful business, lots of money, was wealthy, big family um, at the time, an encouraging wife probably, if you know the story of Job. And uh, his life was, was, was good until, and this is a whole other sermon, but I just want you to know the context before we look at this passage in, in chapter 16 of Job. Until Lucifer visited with God in heaven, that's a whole other sermon, but he said, hey, I bet you I can get Job to blaspheme your name. I bet you I can get him to, uh, to, to just walk away from you. And God said, you, you can have at it. You, the only thing you can't do is you can't take his life. You can't kill him. And uh, every, everything was great in chapter 1, and then you get to chapter 2, and it's a mess. And so, uh, you know, he lost his family. He lost his his wealth, he lost his health, and, uh, and his wife wasn't all that helpful either, nor was his friends. You know, before, you know, in Job chapter 1, he, he probably wouldn't have written a really good country song, but after chapter 2, uh, he, he wrote a whole book. Uh, it sounds like a country song. Like, God, you took everything from me. And then in Job chapter 16 is, his, is one of those complaints in, in Job that he just just shares with God. Just says, I, this, is, this is my life right now. I'm going to read it for you. You could follow along. He said, Surely, God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have shriveled me up, and it has become a witness. My gauntlet rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on, on, on me with his piercing eyes. God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. That's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. If God is all-knowing, right? We've been looking at Psalm 139. If God is all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful, then why does he allow evil and suffering in this world? Have you ever asked that question? I think if we're all honest, we wrestled with that question at least. And so there's two things I want to do. We're going to 
Look at Psalm 139, and we're going to visit with, with Job a little bit uh, in our time together. And there's two things I want to do. One, I'm going to look at the plan for the suffering. I'm going to look at the plan for the suffering, and then later I'm going to look at the promise for the suffering. And then Nathan is going to come up afterwards, and he's going to share his story. Uh, this is it will be the only second time in his life that he has publicly shared his story, and so he's going to do that with us um, in, in a little bit. But the plan for the suffering. We're told in Psalm 139, in verses 13 through 18, that at the core of our being, we are what? Fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. In the image of the living God. Now, I got a card last week with a question and the question was, what does it mean to be, like, what does that mean, to be fearfully and wonderfully made? Well, in the original language, the, the original, like, Hebrew is very colorful. Like, there are multiple ways you can translate certain words. And, and so I'm going to share with you some ways that this, or one way that this passage can be translated in verse 14. The word for fearful in the Hebrew can also be translated reverent. It can be translated reverent. And the, word, the Hebrew word for wonderful can be translated extraordinarily or, or, or extraordinary or different. And literally, verse 14 can be translated, it's not verse 13, it's verse 14. Verse 14 can be translated, I am reverently and extraordinarily set apart. This is really important uh, when it comes to trying to figure out why, why does God let things, bad things happen in my life? I am reverently and extraordinarily set apart. I believe in verse four, that verse 14 is saying two things. One, uh, there's a blanket statement that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. All of us, every single human being on planet Earth is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And the psalmist, who is David, is also reflecting on the fact that he belongs to God. Like he is a worshiper of the creator of all the universe. He is a worshiper of Yahweh, God's most personal name. And as a worshiper of Yahweh, not only is he fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, but he is reverently and extraordinarily set apart for God. You, you know, you're tracking with me? And so th this is so important to, to, to just come to terms with this first before we start answering the question of why does God allow suffering in the world, and more, uh, more particularly, why does he allow his people to suffer? Why does he allow his people to suffer? Uh, he kind of, like David exposes his cards in this passage a little bit, and he lets us know what's in his hand. You know, he wrote this song, and we come to verses 19 through 24, and he describes two different types of people. He describes those who, who uh, want nothing to do with God, and he describes uh, those like himself who want to worship God and are striving to worship God. And, and this is what he says in these verses. He said, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. That's so important. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them uh, my enemies. Certain. And then he says something about himself. He says, search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You, you know what David is saying here? He's saying, your, your enemies, they, they take your name, they misuse your name, and they use it in, in, in vain. And, and God, I don't want to do that. I want to live my life in a way that honors you and lines up with the things that you love. I want to love what you love and hate what you hate. I, I, have you ever uh, thought about the, I believe, the third commandment? That, you know, do not take the Lord's name in vain. When I was growing up, I was told that it had everything to do with what comes out of your mouth. And have you heard that before? Uh, don't curse. Don't, don't use the, you know, God's name in vain. Like, you know, cur don't curse with God's name in it. But that's not the biblical understanding of using God's name in vain. There's something more profound about using his name properly and misusing his name. We learn from the Bible that there are at least three ways that a person can misuse the name of God or use his name in vain. One way is that we can use God's name in vain when we love anything more than him. That's Matthew chapter 15. I'm not going to read the passage for you. You can look it up sometime. But that's one way we can misuse the name of God. The second way we can misuse the name of God is that we can use the name of God in vain anytime we talk about him in a way that misrepresents the truth. This is so, so important to, to understand. Listen, we are fearfully and wonderfully made in whose image? God's image, right? You should know this by now, right? We are fearfully and wonderfully made in whose image? God's image. And how we live our life, our lives, either honors him or dishonors him. That's how you use the name of God in vain. How you live your life can mis you, you can determines whether or not you're using his name in vain or not. Not what comes out of your mouth, but how you live your life. And, uh, and we can use the name of God in vain anytime we talk about him in a way that misrepresents the truth. I'll give you some examples. God, I know you don't want me to live with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, but I need to be closer to him or her so that I can introduce him or her to you. That's misusing God's name in vain. Uh, God, I know that you say uh, I, sh I, I shouldn't lie, but there are certain exceptions where I should be able to lie. That's misusing God's name and it's using his name in vain. Uh, anytime that we uh, invoke the name of God and, 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 and misrepresent the truth, we use his name in vain. And thirdly, we can use the name of God in vain anytime we misrepresent God with our actions. That's how you use his name in vain. This is important to, to understand because David is answering for us what does it mean to be fearfully and wonderfully made? What does it mean to be a human being? And, and, under, and answering that question will help us understand the purpose of suffering, particularly the purpose of suffering among God's people, among those who, who know him and worship him. You know, Job complained, God has worn me out. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. You felt empty. Have you ever suffered so much where you just felt, em you felt empty? You know, I, like, 
in our lives, like we experience that. So you, you know some of our story. You're going to hear Nathan's story, so I'm not going to take away from anything he's going to share. But uh, we didn't sign up for narcolepsy. He didn't sign up for narcolepsy. Uh, we didn't sign up for Roy Ma suffering from debilitating pain as a result of giving birth. We didn't sign up for that stuff. That was not in our property disclosure form uh, with, our, in, in our, with our understanding of who God is and who we are. We didn't sign up for that stuff. Job didn't sign up for uh, having his family stripped from him. He didn't sign up for a very discouraging wife who said, you know what, you already have boils all over your skin. Life is miserable. You can write the perfect country song. This is what you should do. Curse God and die. That's what she said to him. Like, his friends were dips. Like, they, they, they just, like, they hung out with him for a little bit. That's, where, that's when they were good friends, when they, had their, when they kept their mouths shut. They became bad friends when they started trying to teach him why he was suffering. And then his wife didn't help matters either. He said, God has worn me out. There's nothing left in me. I'm empty. I feel, I feel empty. And, and, and I feel less than whole because of what I've suffered. And, and God answered Job in the most peculiar way, and it's not very satisfying for those of us who, you know, who have experienced suffering. In chapter 38, verse 1, God answered Job. He said, uh, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And then he, God proceeds to give Job a theology lesson about who he is, about who God is. It's like, Job, shut up for a second and sit down. You've got some things you need to be reminded of. A friend of mine called the following chapters in Job, the kick-butt chapters of Job, where God begins to answer, where were you when I created all the galaxies and spoke, spoke the stars into existence and gave them all a name? Where, where were you when that happened? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? I mean, have you forgotten that I am the all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful God who has called you by name, that you're mine, have you, have you forgotten that? And, and God ex, it just explains to him all that God was responsible for doing. And, and Job's answer is very telling in chapter 42, verses 2 through uh, 6 in, 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 in Job. And let's read this together, because I think it's good for us to hear and to read it at the same time. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked... Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of these things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself, repent in dust and ashes. Now, here's the point. And after this, God restores everything that Job lost sevenfold. Like it's, that doesn't mean that God's always going to do that. It doesn't mean that he's going to cure the cancer. It doesn't mean that he's going to find you another wife or another husband. It doesn't mean that he's going to find you another, he's going to get you another child. In Job's case, God restored much of what he lost. What it does mean is that, that there's a God who is indeed all-knowing that he is indeed all-present, that he is indeed infinite, he's all-powerful, 
He is equally powerful as he is equally good. And even though Job couldn't see what was going on in his life, God was doing something beautiful in it. It was painful. It sucked. It was hard. Job shed many tears, probably to the point where he had no more tears to shed. But God was doing something in his life, and God reminded him, I'm doing something here, Job. I'm doing something in your life. It's beautiful, and the reason why I'm doing it is because I love you, even though you don't completely understand all that is happening. You know, there is a mystery to suffering. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, I, not all of my questions were answered. I, 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 shared with this, I shared this with many of you before. I'll share it again. I won't go into the details, but God miraculously healed me. Like, he physically, miraculously healed me. He did it. I have proof that he did it. He removed plaque from my arteries that were there, and when the doctor went in and found that they weren't there, he scratched his head and he said, I don't know, like you have good genes, and something's protecting you. He healed me. But 19 years ago, when Nathan was born, Roy Ma suffered multiple injuries that she has suffered from ever since. God didn't heal her. She had two major hip surgeries that she still struggles with, the, pain, uh, the resultant pain of. And then when Nathan was 10, he was diagnosed with, or 11, he was diagnosed with narcolepsy, which he'll share with you about. He didn't heal him. I, I've cried out to God, and I've pleaded with him, because you, some of you know this. You know, as a parent, how helpless you feel, or as a spouse, how helpless you feel when you can't fix the suffering that your kid or your wife is going through. Right? Have, have any of you been there before? We're like, I want to fix this, and I can't. And then you cry out to God and say, God, please do something. And you know what really makes it even more difficult? When you know he can and he doesn't. I, I've said this, I've gone on record, if narcolepsy was a dude, I would beat the crap out of him. I would. I am a dad, and I love my son with all my heart. And I want nothing more than to, for, for him to be cured. I, I've pleaded with God, take his narcolepsy and give it to me. I'll take it. Take my wife's chronic pain and give it to me. I will take it. And he's chosen not to. And there's a mystery there, and I don't understand all of that. I don't understand why. But somebody said this. He said, if, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. If God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. And, and God, the whole point of, of what, uh, what God said to Job in those last remaining chapters in Job was, I am big. Now, you, you, you can't wrap your mind around what I'm doing here. I understand that. But trust me. Know that I'm doing something good in your life. Like, we are like my bulimic cat. I talked about her a little bit last time, right? Like, she, she would hear the food, magically appear in her bowl, and that's all she understood. She didn't, re she didn't understand, nor should, could, she, could she possibly comprehend that earlier I stood in the grocery store staring at cat food, trying to process and think through which food can I get that she will not throw up again on our nice carpet. Right? I mean, it was, it, for 10 years we dealt with this bulimic cat. 
and we still loved her. But there's only so much that she can understand. And, and the Bible tells us the same thing. There's, there's only so much that your brain can take in and understand. You, you, you cannot comprehend an infinite God with a finite mind. But you can trust him. And the Bible gives us, it does give us some reasons why there's suffering, why there's evil. And I'll give you three of them, three reasons. One is this, is that, and, and so we're getting into the promise for the suffering now, the promise for the suffering. Um, and even before, before I even go there, we, we tend, I said this before, I feel like I've got to say it again, that we tend to judge the goodness uh, and knowledge of God, of an infinite God, against you know, our, our finite understanding and our, our goodness, which is lacking. You know, just turn on the news and you, you'll find that out. Or have kids. You know, we're reminded of how bad we are as parents. And yeah, I don't need to say much about that. Why, why do we have to teach our kids to tell the truth, right? Um, I was so delighted in the last service where Nathan uh, gave me credit for uh, puberty-induced amnesia. Um, he helped me term that, that, that phrase, coin that phrase. He'll tell you about it. Um, but there are three reasons why there's evil and suffering that the Bible gives us. One, Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. He's alive and well on planet Earth. He exists. Now, here's the hard thing. Lucifer was not created evil, but he chose to be evil. And here's the kicker. God created him anyway, knowing that he would choose to be evil. And then you can just camp on that tonight and lose sleep over that one because I'm not going to try to answer that. But, but what we learn of Lucifer is that Jesus said he was guilty of sinning from the beginning. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we're told that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What does that mean? He hates you and he hates me. He absolutely hates you. You know why he hates you? Because you're fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God a being that he absolutely despises and hates. He hates you. And every time he sees you, he, he's reminded of, of, of the reality that, he is, uh, that God is, is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing, and that God is infinite. Here's the thing that you need to know about Satan. He is powerful but not all-powerful. He is knowledgeable but not all-knowing. And uh, he is, he's been around for a long time, but he's not infinite. He has a shelf life too. God said one day he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. He'll be tormented there. Here's the other thing you need to know about Lucifer is he can't do, he cannot do, he can do nothing. He can do nothing without God's approval or permission. Now that opens up a whole can of worms, but that's what we learn from the story of Job. Satan is on a leash. I think sometimes it feels like a very long leash. But the one who holds that leash is the creator of all that exists, one who is infinitely good. And he is so good and so powerful that he is able to turn evil around for your good and for his glory. If you don't believe me, just look at the cross, the crucifixion of our Savior. Jesus said of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. 
The second reason why there's evil and suffering is that we are rebellious and a cursed race. We, we, uh, you know the story of Genesis 3. Uh, from, the, from the beginning, uh, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And the reason why uh, our world is the way it is today is because of that. I shared this quote with you from one of the church, I believe one of the church fathers, who said, uh, Adam and Eve bit into the fruit and our teeth have ached ever since. You know, that's our condition. That's the place that we find ourselves in. The Bible says none is righteous, no one, not, no one understands, no one seeks for God. The reason for most of the world's suffering today is us, human beings. And then thirdly, we live in a world that is cursed. Things are definitely not the way they ought to be or should be. You know, death happens. Famine happens. Disease and violence and, you know, plagues our world. Cancer centers exist and children's hospitals across our nation exist because we live in a world that is cursed. It's appropriate to weep, you know, over these things. It's understandable to cry out with the people of God who, who cried some of the same things, who lamented the same, same, same complaints that have been canonized in Scripture. Like Psalm 22, our Savior said, you know, cried out this psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. I've been there. I'm sure you've been there too. I, there have been seasons in my life where I just, you know, I, I, I didn't want to do it in my home because I didn't want anybody to hear me, but I would go over into Calvary Baptist Church's building because I was the custodian, and I would just cry out to God. I cried many tears over my wife and my son. But there's a whisper in Scripture from the very beginning of the pages of Scripture, and, and this is the reason why all of creation is groaning as we know it. It's found in Revelation 21, verses 4 through 5. It's God's promise to us that suffering has a shelf life. It will not last forever. Let's read this together. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And we know this to be true. You want to know why we know this to be true? Because there's an empty tomb. Jesus rose from the grave. And because he rose from the grave, God is making all things new. Um, you can treat your pain as something as, uh, that is random and outside of God's ability to turn it around for good, or you can understand it as something that God is bigger than. He's bigger than your pain. He's bigger than your suffering, and he's doing something, he's doing something you might not understand. You might, you might not be able to see it, but he's turning this around for something beautiful. And to be okay with that, to say, okay, I trust that he's doing something with this. Frank Peretti said this, he said, God does not waste an ounce of our pain or a drop of our tears. Suffering doesn't come our way for no reason, and he seems efficient at using what we endure to mold character. If we are malleable, he takes our bumps and bruises and shapes them into something beautiful. I've said that to Nathan over and over again. Nathan, God is doing something beautiful here. I, I don't understand it. And quite frankly, I'm angry. I'm angry that you have the, uh, narcolepsy, but, but I know God is doing something beautiful. If you're a Christian, what David said of himself is true of you 
and it's true of me. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the living God. I am reverently and extraordinarily set apart for, for his glory, for the good of those around me, and for my good as well. He's doing something. He holds the disclosure form. And what it says on there may include cancer, it may include suffering, it may include some of the things you never thought possible would enter into your life, but, but understand that the one who holds the disclosure form is a God who's good, and he's doing something in your life. And when I read, was thinking through this psalm, thinking about the way verse 14 can be translated, I thought of Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 32. And let's read this together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Bible says because of what Jesus did, you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. God holds the disclosure for him. He's written it. He's not, he's not been dishonest about it. We just don't know everything that's on it. And he's doing something beautiful in our lives. Nathan, why don't you come up and just share a little bit of your story. Um, this is the second time in his life that he's sharing this. So, His doctor... Uh, yeah, it's on. His doctor watched the live stream of the first service and actually sent him a text message, which was pretty sweet. So like he said, this is my second time, so I apologize if this is a bit still rusty. Um, but uh, I've thought a lot about what I wanted to say up here and um, what I wanted to get across. Uh, but before that, I'd like to tell you what narcolepsy is. Um, normally, I just tell people that it's a neurological sleep disorder. But in truth, it can be so much more than that. Um, for some narcoleptics, they suffer from vivid hallucinations. And others, they suffer, suffer from something called cataplexy which uh, is something that causes temporary paralysis triggered by strong emotions, and for me, that's joy. Um, to be diagnosed, you first have to have the gene, and um, it has to be activated. And uh, for me, the flu shot was what really uh, brought on the symptoms. And then you're, you're really left feeling cheated out of a normal life. Like, you ask, why me? Why out of the seven billion people on this planet did I have to be, have the misfortune of having this disease? And, um, you know, I was angry. I, I'd be angry at home, and even angrier at school. You know, I hated school, and, and I disliked my teachers for all the times I was treated unfairly. You know, thought of as lazy, or like I, I was a slacker, or or something like that. 
you know, you know, I, you know, I, I was sad because my friends, you know, or I called them my friends, but I'm not sure how much they were really my friends, because they never, they never really understood. Neither did my teachers, but um, I'd, when I'd have a cataplectic event or episode, um, they they'd laugh. And you know that that really makes you feel terrible because you know these are my friends. You know, aren't you supposed to be supporting me, being understanding? But you know, I I blame them for a long time. You know, I blame them for not understanding or um, being rude or both my teachers and peers. But um. As I got older, I outgrew that. I um, I understood that, you know, not everyone understands, or they didn't know any better. I I didn't. I hardly knew myself what was going on until I was diagnosed. Um, so I eventually let it go. I let it go of that grudge, but it still didn't. I still didn't feel great. Um, at home, I was, I had the support of my parents, and they went out of their way to tell tell my teachers. Um, and they, once they knew about it, they were understanding, which was, it was nice to have the support that my teachers would provide once they understood what was going on. Um, but at home, I, I, I had the support, but you know, you can have all the support in the world, but still feel lonely and isolated. And um, I, I felt like I was scared to feel joy or have fun. I, I didn't want, it's scary when you're, when you're completely conscious, but unable to move for anywhere from several seconds to, several minutes that feels like an eternity where you're unable to move or, you know, and it, it's exhausting. It takes a lot out of you because even breathing is hard because for me, the cataplexy was the most severe part of my narcolepsy. And so everything about it, would like once, I, once it was over, I'd be exhausted because I tried to fight it to no avail. And it, it really sucked because you can't really fight something like that. Um, so the fear of that prevented me from doing the things that, you know, everyone, people my age would typically do, sleepovers, hanging out, you know, the, watching fu funny movies. Um, I was scared to do all that because I didn't want to experience a cataplectic event, and it and it was really discouraging and, and sad that I couldn't experience those things. Um, you know, I would spend sleepless nights sobbing because because I was devastated of the things I never get to experience or enjoy. Um, you know, I I would. I wanted I wanted to experience what it meant to like have a belly laugh, but I, you know I I couldn't. Not without 
who's suffering a cataplectic event. And, you know, the sadness I felt was overwhelming. It, it was many times I think to myself, I just want it to be over. I, I just want this to end. I'd say, tell God, just let me die. Just let it happen. Because I didn't want to go on anymore. Because what, I mean, what's a life, what's life worth living if you, if you can't experience happiness or joy? At least that's why I thought. I know there's more to life than, than just feeling those things. But at the time, that's what I thought. That's all I, you know, I wasn't at the place I am now. Um, I remember a time where my dad brought me back a gift from a, from a conference he went to in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, he brought me back a tiny, uh, a miniature Louisville slugger bat with my name inscribed in it. Um, but in my, well, my lower moments, um, I, uh, I, I carved into a dead man because that's how I felt. I felt dead inside. I didn't feel whole. Um, and that's, well, this is the second time I've shared it. The first time was the first service. I haven't really told anyone about those things because my I did things in my my lowest, most private moments. You know, um, that I don't really like sharing. Um, and uh, of course, I was being treated. I, I had regular doctor visits, um, multiple sleep studies, which I can tell you really suck because um, they wrap your head in gauze and put wires to your head and expect you to sleep and uh, watch you while you're sleeping, which didn't really help. I took lots of pictures. <laughs> yeah. So I was with him every single one of those sleep studies. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so, and I would go through different medicine, medicational uh, combinations, trying to find a right balance so that I might be able to live a normal life. Um, but my doctor would say that I, would, I was um, one of her hardest patients to treat, um, which wasn't really encouraging because I just wanted to live a normal life. I just wanted to experience some kind of normality and enjoy the things that people can, that, other people are able to enjoy every day. Um, eventually, I kind of just gave up on that. I, the fear of having a cataplectic event was overwhelming, so I kind of isolated myself. I didn't want to experience those things, so I took myself out of the, those situations where I might experience that, and um, it sucked because, you know, I wanted to experience those, but I wanted to experience a cataplectic event even less. Um, and I, I would pray. I prayed and prayed that God would heal me, that he'd take this away from me. But it didn't seem like he was listening. Um, so I, I gave up. I didn't, I stopped asking. But eventually I was... Um, 
reminded of a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when Paul would plead with God to take the thorn out of his flesh. But this was God's response. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So I thought maybe that's what God was telling me in not answering my prayers, that maybe this was my thorn in my flesh and that his power is made perfect in my weakness. Um, you know, I, so I stopped praying because I realized that I wouldn't be the person I am without going through all that. I wouldn't be able to emphasize with other people who have suffered were, had I not gone through this, and still am going through this. You know, I'm not, I'm not out yet. Um, you know, I'm still experiencing it. But I'm better than I have been. Um, you know, and some days I still mourn over the life that I'll never be able to experience. But since I kind of just opened my hands and held out my hands and said, you know, okay, I have this. So what can I, I know there are things I can't do, but what are the things I can do? And ever since, you know, life's gotten better. You know, I, the medicine's been more effective and, than it's ever been before. And I, and um, getting out of puberty allows, you know, my body's not going through all the wacky changes. Um, so it, the medicine's more effective now more than ever. Um, and so things are getting better. But, uh, you know, I think now that I've come out of that, um, the questioning of why me, or um, why did I have to suffer, I've grown closer with, in my relationship with God. But I didn't get here on my own. I had people in my life, like my doctor, who's become more than just a doctor to our family. She's become a family friend. And, um, and Melissa, who I wouldn't be here. Um, I never thought I'd get to a place in my faith with, uh, if it weren't for someone like Melissa in InterVarsity that's uh, helped me grow my faith. And the, and the friends I've made through university that are actually here today um, that have come to support me and best friends I've ever had. Um, and most of all, my parents who um, put up with me and uh, like he mentioned, puberty-induced amnesia. Um, you can tell you I wasn't the easiest to deal with. I'm gonna pat Nat. And I'll get some royalties, and maybe I'll give you some. Yeah, that'd be nice. Write a book sometime. <laughs> yeah, um, they uh, bent over backwards to try and give me a normal life as much as possible. Um, but I, I want you all to know, and anyone who's listening on the live stream, that suffering doesn't have to define us. It It doesn't have to... It will shape us, it will change us, but it doesn't need to define us. 
we all have our cross to bear. We all have something. And my parents would always tell me that, that there's always going to be something. And, but no matter what you're going through, no matter how dark life may seem or get, the suffering is only temporary. This life is temporary. There's more waiting for us in eternity. And this is, the suffering is temporary, but God's love is eternal. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, and, and we're going to be dismissed in a second, but I wanted you to hear his story because this, some of you are still going through it. You're still dealing with stuff, and it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight. But, but even though you can't see the end, uh, to, be, to know that God there's a design behind this. There's something happening here that, that's bigger than, than you or bigger than Nathan or bigger than our family. And, uh, and, and to, trust, to trust that, to trust that there's a goodness behind this and something beautiful that's being, that's being formed in the midst of this. Is, is that, but it's not easy. And that's why I thought... I didn't force Nathan to do this. I asked him, I said, what do you think about sharing your story? And he said, sure, which surprised me. I thought he'd say no. And, and here he is, so I'm very proud of him. Uh, he'll be hanging out, so he's available to, to answer questions. Dr. Halbauer is his doctor, and she, she like he said, she is, uh, uh, has become a, a family friend. And she watched the live stream on the first service, and uh, I won't read you everything, but she said, wow, super powerful, your sermon as well as Nathan's testimony, um, and just expressed how how proud she is of, of Nathan. And, uh, and so that, that was really cool that she you know, was able to, to, to watch that. And, and so, yeah, so suffering sucks. And, uh, and we don't get all the easy answers in the Bible. There's no easy button like I talked about last week. But uh, there are some answers. I'm going to pray, and then uh, you'll be dismissed, and then Nathan will hang out if you want to talk to him and learn more about narcolepsy or whatever. He'll be available. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel that it promises us that suffering does have a shelf life. It's not eternal. And, uh, and that we know that to be true because of Jesus rising from the grave. And if there's anyone here who's never, uh, doesn't know you, doesn't know your son Jesus, God, I just pray that they would hear these words, that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody can come to the Father except by me. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that, God, that you, God, raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The salvation is a gift. It's free. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything for it. Just believe it. Believe the gospel. And so, God, I, I pray for those who don't know you and for the rest of us who do, God, who need to be encouraged that these words that Nathan shared, uh, what we looked at in Psalm 139, that these would, that there would be encouragement to them. Thank you for what you're doing in and through our church and the lives here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.